0: Let's pray and ask for God to help all of us before we do. Lord, we pray that your word might speak to us this morning and that you might use me to speak it faithfully and clearly. We pray, Father, that you might teach us, rebuke and correct us where we have sinned. And, Lord, we pray that you might encourage us by the gospel and to look to Jesus in our sin. So have your way in us. And, Lord, we pray that all in all the ways that we respond, that it might be pleasing to you. For the glory of our Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's hard to stay faithful in marriage today, isn't it? When a third of marriages are ending in divorce and thousands of children are affected, affected, it's hard for many. I think it's hard to stay faithful when 80% of couples today don't even make Public promises of faithfulness before moving in together—it's hard to stay faithful when you don't, when you're not in love anymore, when we don't feel loved, or just don't feel the love anymore. And it's hard to stay faithful when we look out for number one first. It's hard to stay faithful when temptation surrounds us. It's hard to stay celibate and single when our friends don't, and don't expect us to. In the face of this, Jesus calls us to be people who keep our word. Keeping our word can cost us. Sometimes it can feel beyond us. So I hope God's word today, by his grace, will help us in this. We're looking at these three paragraphs that are united around this theme of keeping your word. We'll look at the promise to exclusiveness, the promise to permanence, and speaking with honesty. Last week we heard Jesus say that our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. And this will only happen when we are justified by faith in Christ. But then as followers of Jesus, we will, by God's Spirit, begin to show righteousness in our lives from the heart. Formal external obedience is not what God seeks, but obedience from the inside out and so we heard Jesus expand and internalize the 6th the, the command do not murder murder do you remember if you were here got deepened to anger and now Jesus moves from the 6th commandment to the 7th and adultery gets deepened to lust so verse 27 to 30 the promise to exclusiveness Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, do you shall not commit adultery? But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In our sex-crazed society, adultery and lust are huge issues. It seems that sex is used to sell nearly everything. Heaps of popular music is focused on sexual relationships. Internet pornography is an epidemic. A study from La Trobe University in 2012 revealed that 56% of Year 12 students had had sex, and a quarter of Year 10 students. Adultery is even acceptable, if you find love elsewhere. And all of this is destroying marriages and families and communities and lives. Keeping promises, to, promises of faithfulness and exclusiveness is hard. Yet we must see that Jesus doesn't just affirm the seventh commandment in a formal external way. He again deepens and internalises it. And what he says applies to men and women, to the married and unmarried. Adultery in Jewish law meant having sexual intercourse with someone else's spouse or fiancé. And Jesus says now, if you look lustfully at another person, you commit adultery in your heart. You've broken your word, your commitment to your spouse in your heart, and you have sinned. But I'd like to suggest to you that as Christians, even as single people, God in his word actually says that you're to be faithful to him. All of us are to live faithfully to him. When we become a Christian, we commit to live with Christ as our Lord. And at our adult baptism or our profession of faith, even in this church, we promise that we will, with the help of God's Spirit, follow the Lord Jesus by believing his promises and obeying what he commands. And so when any of us Christians look lustfully at another person, we break our word. We should keep our word, but we break our word. What is lust? Literally the word means to strongly desire something, to have something or to do something. Here it means to desire someone sexually, and it starts... In the heart. As Jesus says later on in Matthew chapter 15, he says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder and adultery and sexual immorality. So lust isn't just knowing, noticing. It's not just noticing that someone's attractive or a brief recognition or a thought that someone's appealing. It is to contemplate being intimate with them sexually, wanting them, thinking on and on about it, imagining it, fantasizing. Maybe you think about that person naked or yourself with them. Maybe you watch that movie. Maybe you surf the nets. Maybe you go to the beach to look at women or images of them. Maybe you read that romantic novel and you desire that man. It is lusts. In the Valiant Man course, which helps men struggling with sexual purity, Alan Meyer talks about how the majority of men and some women are stimulated visually and how our brains are wired. And Meyer calls lust a high through the eyes, looking again or looking long enough to get that mental kick, that chemical high of pleasure and excitement. So if we've experienced that, if we know we struggle with this, what should we do? Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It's the same with the hand. It's better to throw away a body part than be thrown into hell. Is Jesus promoting self-mutilation? The third century scholar, Oregon of Alexandria, he took an over-literal interpretation here. He actually made himself a eunuch. He castrated himself to live this out. But if you lost your left eye, couldn't your right eye still lost? And if the problem, if the lust actually comes from our hearts, then what good will plucking our eye out do? We can still think those thoughts. The real point is we need to be ready to give up whatever is necessary, our most precious things, to protect us from sin. It's figurative language, but it's meant in the strongest sense, and Jesus exaggerates to impress the deadly seriousness of sin. We must deal drastically with our sin. Jesus is saying even your sight is less important than your salvation or your godliness. And so don't flirt with sin. Don't think about it or nibble it around the edges. We are to hate it. We are to crush it. We are to gouge it out. As John Stott puts it, if you're eye causes you to sin, cut it out, it means don't look. Behave as if you had actually gouged out your eyes, flung them away and were now blind and could not see the objects that previously caused you to sin. If your hand or foot causes you to sin in the things you do or the places you go, don't do it. Don't go. Behave as if you had actually cut off your hand or foot and were now crippled. So if you need to do something drastic, like give up your smartphone or disconnect your home Wi-Fi, then you do that. It's worth it. If you're falling for someone else at work who's married, or if you're married and you're falling for someone else, it's worth asking to be moved. It's worth ask, It's worth looking for a new job. The relationship might feel pleasurable and fulfilling, but you will stumble. It needs to stop. It should be severed. So don't sacrifice your integrity or your spiritual life for that relationship. And when we've failed and we know we've lusted and and failed to be faithful to our God or our spouse. Remember that we have a great saviour. We are great sinners, but we have a great saviour if we have turned from our sin to him. Christ came and lived the perfect and sinless life for us in our place. And he died in our place that we might be forgiven and also set free from the rule of sin so that we wouldn't keep sinning. And when your trust is in Christ, his righteousness is counted as yours, God accepts you and he loves you and he gives you his spirits. And when that happens, you'll want to live a life that pleases him. So... Pray that the fruit of the Spirit will be evident in your life. Pray that you will show faithfulness. And know yourself. Know your weaknesses. Know where you will be tempted. We're all different. We stumble over different things. I'm not going to give you a list of do's and don'ts. Yet, an adulterous heart Plans for and seeks lust satisfying situations. While the godly heart plans for avoiding those situations and will run from them whenever they are unavoidable. So, what sort of heart do you have? And please, men, don't think you're man enough to handle this. You're not man enough to handle that that temptation and keep it in check. You are not. And men and women, please bounce your eyes when you see something that will make you lust. Bounce your eyes, turn away, look away, move away again and again and again. Because... Controlling our eyes will help us to control our desires. And replace that sinful thought with a a positive godly thought. And so why not memorize and quote to yourself, say to yourself out loud if you need, flee from sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your body. Or Job 31, verse 1, or another verse that's helpful for you. Quote it to yourself. If you're married, keep your commitment to be faithful to your spouse. And married or not, may we all keep our commitment to live faithfully to our God. Next, we consider the promise to permanence, verse 31. Jesus says more about divorce in chapter 19, but giving a wife a certificate of divorce, as mentioned here, as compared with just sending her away, aimed to restrain the actions of men and also aimed to protect women from slander and mistreatment. And yet in Jesus' day, as in ours, divorce was and is easy. There were two schools of Jewish thought back then in the first century involving different interpretations of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Some Jews allowed men to divorce their wives for trivial reasons like burning the dinner or not being attractive enough, while the other group considered adultery as the only acceptable reason for divorce. In our society, marriage is all about love today, isn't it? And yet love seems to be a mixture of physical desire and fuzzy feelings, and marriage has become a provisional sexual union to be terminated when this pygmy love dissolves. But true marriage is a commitment to each other before others and before God And Jesus here is saying, honour marriage by remembering its God given intention. Just as marriage involves a promise to complete faithfulness, it involves a promise to permanence. Sickness or health. For better, for worse. Until death do we part. Permanence. Divorce might happen. Divorce does happen. But it was not meant to be. Many confused and conflicting ideas about the Bible's teaching on divorce abound, but not because of any deficiency in God's word, but because sin and worldliness has clouded people's minds. Yet I know that many people are wounded deeply by broken marriages, and this topic brings up memories and feelings they would rather forget. With John Stott, I agree. He says, divorce is a complex subject that touches many people's emotions at a deep level. And there's almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage. And almost no tragedy as great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfilment into a non-relationship of unhappiness, bitterness, A discord and despair. Stott says, I know the pain many suffer and I have no wish to add to their distress. Yet I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this and every subject is good, intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for society. In verse 32... Jesus restricts permitted divorce to cases of sexual immorality or fornication, and that is any sex with someone, uh, any sex outside of a married heterosexual relationship. And for a husband back then to end a marriage for other reasons, as the ESV, I think, better translates the phrase, it causes her to commit adultery as it is assumed that she will remarry for her protection and provision in cases of abuse we would encourage a separation for a woman's protection too and encourage or begin a process of church discipline against the offender and if an unbelieving spouse leaves from 1 corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15 we would understand that that gives grounds for a biblical divorce and remarriage. This is a complex situation. Every situation is unique and there is more to be said. Please do speak with me or one of the pastors if you have questions or difficulties. Remarriage being adultery isn't because after a divorce, the two are still married but rather you remain unavailable to others with the hope for a future reconciliation. As 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 24 summarises this when it says, nothing but adultery, or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. Still, even after the horrible devastation of adultery, divorce is not commanded. If there is true repentance, forgiveness, forgiveness, and reconciliation can occur. Do you remember the story of Hosea, the prophets, that we had two portions of read earlier? The Lord said to Hosea, "'Go, marry a promiscuous woman, have children with her, "'for like an adulterous wife, "'this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. "'The man was told to marry a woman who'd become a prostitute "'and have adulterous affairs.'" Yet Hosea was to be faithful to her in spite of her unfaithfulness. In other words, Hosea was to act out and play the part of the loving and faithful God. And the adulterous wife played the part of sinful Israel. She would play the harlots, like Israel had left the true God to run and lust after other gods. Hosea would be faithful. Forgiving and loving, just as God is and God promises to be. And so God says, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. And so when at her lowest point, her husband finds her and he redeems her, he buys his wife back from slavery and brings her back to himself. And that is what God has done for us in Christ. That is good news for all of us. Praise be to God. God is able to forgive our idolatry, our spiritual adultery. And he can forgive adultery. He can forgive unbiblical divorces. He forgives it all when we truly turn from sin and trust in Jesus. And now, if God can forgive adultery by his grace, his people can as well. His people can forgive it too. God desires husbands and wives to keep their word. So as much as it is within your power, by the grace of God and with all the strength that he gives, keep your promise to permanence. thirdly, we are to speak with honesty. For most people today, a credibility gap exists. And that's because of the sin that dwells in all of our hearts. And yet it's widened by our culture, by popular music and movies and media and advertising. And so truth and fantasy and falsehood get all blended together. Today, truth is so scarce that nearly everyone is suspect. People in court under oath. There's bankers who can't be trusted. Politicians, commentators, salesmen, lawyers, tradies, teachers, sadly even preachers, are all suspect and we can't be trusted. So people think. Sadly, so often happens. Too much of our society is built on a network of fabrication and spin and lies I mean, I'm told if I just buy the latest piece of exercise equipment, I'll get a six-pack. People shade the truth. They cheat. They exaggerate. I mean, fish get bigger. Invoices and profits get enlarged. Reports at work get overstated. Photos get airbrushed. We misrepresent our tax deductions. We make promises we don't intend to keep and then we make up excuses. We betray confidences, sometimes all as a matter of normal, everyday living. And so verses 33 to 37 speak to us. Jesus' reference to not breaking oaths, verse 33 is not a direct quote, but it comes from various scriptures. Excuse me. There are links here to the third and the ninth commandments. And Numbers 30 verse 2 speaks about how oaths and vows must not be broken. Now an oath is a solemn and serious pledge or promise to do something. And you call on the name of God or a sacred object to witness it and confirm it is true. And so with an oath, you would solemnly swear that something is true and often you would invoke the name of someone or something greater to give credibility to what's said. And and God says in Leviticus 19 verse 12, Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. People back then, it seems, swore oaths very easily and and that they'd even were swearing an oath but being deceiving, even lying. It seems that people thought they could swear falsely and lie if they avoided using God's name. And as Jesus highlights, if you swear by heaven or earth, by Jerusalem or even your own head, all of creation is God's. Don't think that you can substitute heaven for God and then not keep your word. doesn't give you a way out. There's no escape clause. God sees and hears it all. In the words of one writer, don't think that God is involved only in certain compartments of our lives and not others, so we have a certain kind of language and behaviour for church, another kind for when we're at work or school or with friends. no. God does not need to be invited in to certain departments of our lives and kept out of others. He's everywhere. He's all through life, in every activity. He doesn't just hear all the words we speak in his name. He hears all the words. And we'll regard all promises as sacred if we remember all promises are made in God's presence. So a half-truth is a whole lie. A white lie is a big black lie. And what does Jesus call for? Honest speech, speaking the truth. Anabaptists in the 16th century, Quakers today, take verse 34, absolutely, they refuse to take oaths like swear on oath in a courtroom. But in Matthew chapter 26 the high priest at Jesus' trial said to Jesus, "I charge you under oath by the living God tell us if you are the Christ the son of God." And Jesus answers him, "Yes, it is as you say." And Paul in scripture several times, the apostle Paul makes promises calling on God as his witness. And so Jesus is not forbidding us forbidding us to take oaths especially if the authorities require it he's against us abusing oaths and jesus is saying it should never be necessary to swear an oath a word should always be reliable jesus calls us back to simple honesty and honest intentions and so i ask you do you speak honestly Always. Do you keep your promises? In verse 37, does your yes mean yes? I've been convicted of this during the week because sometimes I forget things. And Kirsty, my wife asks me to do something and I say I will and then I forget. And my forgetting really shows that I wasn't listening at the start. Or what was asked of me wasn't important enough for me to remember because I remember other things, even if it's like remembering to get something at the shops. If I need to put a reminder in my phone or write myself a note, I need to do that. My yes must mean yes. Jesus calls me to be a man of my word. He calls you to be a person of your word in the small things and the big things. God keeps his word. Our God is a faithful God. We, his children, are be to be like that too. So how do you go at keeping your promises? Or maybe you're so flaky you never make any promises. You won't get married. You'll just forever date that person. You You won't RSVP to that party because you'll wait for a better offer. And... Or you'll say yes and you pike because you got a better offer? Or do you deceive or exaggerate in person or online? Do you forget or fail to do what you said you would do? Jesus says, let your yes mean yes. Let your yes be yes. Keep your word to God to your spouse if you have one, and to others always. I think we've all failed to keep our words sometimes. We've all fallen short and failed to be faithful. We've sinned. And because our God is always faithful to all of his promises, even of saving us through faith in Jesus, may we Flee to Jesus. May we rely on him for forgiveness, for a clean slate, and for the strength to obey now, for the strength to obey again. I close with this true story. Years ago during the American Civil War, a beautiful, well-educated and popular young woman fell into prostitution. By the time she was 22, she lay broken, friendless and dying in a Cincinnati hospital. Just before she died on a cold winter's day, she wrote a poem lamenting her life. It was published in the newspaper and thousands of people sympathised with her. The poem ended with these lines. Fainting, freezing, dying alone... Too wicked for prayer, too weak for a moan. To be heard in the streets of this crazy town, gone mad in the joy of the snow coming down. To lie and to die in my terrible woe, with a bed and a shroud of the beautiful snow. Sometime later, a verse was added by another person. Helpless and frail as the trampled snow, sinner despair not, Christ stoopeth low. To rescue the soul that is lost in its sin and to raise it to life and enjoyment again. Groaning, bleeding, dying for thee, the crucified one made a curse on the tree. His whispers of mercy fall soft on your ear, Is there mercy for me? Will he hear my prayer? O God, in the stream that for sinners doth flow, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that even when we are unfaithful in our words and in our lives, that you remain faithful always. We thank you that for your gracious promise of forgiveness and cleansing a life evermore for all who come to you seeking grace, relying on Jesus. May that be each one of us today. And by your spirit in us, please change us to make us more like you, to display faithfulness in our lives even in our desires and our words. Make us more like Jesus and shine out through us to those around us the difference that you, our God, make to our lives. We pray in Christ's name.